0: the First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, please turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter number 16. And um, I just want to welcome you guys back because we're in part two of this series titled Go. And, uh, and as we talked about, this series is about the commandment that Jesus gave for us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Um, that he said that we're, we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so this series is about this text in the Bible that we refer to as the Great Commission. And as we talked about last week, the Great Commission in evangelism and evangelism and disciple making is not just for a select group of gifted people who are in full-time ministry. The Great Commission is about us all. We were all called to get involved in the Great Commission. We all, every one of us have a part to play. Uh, because what we what we've come to understand about this text is that the imperative in this phrase is not so much the, the word go, as in go and street witness or go into other countries as a missionary or, or go preach at some big rally. Even though those things are, are relevant ways to share the gospel, instead the emphasis in this text is on disciple making. And the emphasis of the Great Commission is making disciples or, or Christ followers. You see, evangelism is just only the very first part. Evangelism is the very beginning of the process. It's not the goal itself. The goal is to bring people into a saving knowledge of Christ and then help them become a, 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 the, a member of the body of Christ and then help them to follow Christ and the things that he commands for all of us. To do. And so and so if we're successful, if we successfully do that, then disciples, we would make we would actually then in turn go out and then do the same thing. You see, evangelism, um, when you think about it, it really is, is about addition, okay? It adds people to the church, but discipleship, discipleship is about multiplication because discipleship is about Christ followers learning how to create more Christ followers, and that's the whole point of the Great Commission. And every single Christ follower has a part to play in this. We all, every one of us, have a part to play in the Great Commission, and that's what we talked about. We talked about that you know, what would happen if every person in this congregation would go out and make just one disciple, right? If they would just help one person come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if they would help just one person to get plugged into the local church, if they would help just one person take seriously their walk with God and become a disciple of Christ, how would that change our church and our community? You see, not only would it double the size of our congregation, like, instantly, it would radically change our community because we would be turning out, you know, a 50 or 60 more new Christ followers out onto our community, storming the gates of hell. And so, because of that, your homework last week, then, was for you to go out and, and to commit to doing your part in this. I mean, we all understand that's what God's calling us to do. What we are asking you to do is just to commit yourself to getting involved in helping one person, at least one person, become a disciple of Christ. And so if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to get caught up And the way that you can do that actually is a couple different ways. Uh, You can actually get caught up either by going to our SoundCloud page or our church website. And you don't have to write that down because it's actually in your bulletin. Um, But you can actually listen and download the message. And either way, I just want to encourage you to get caught up because because what we're doing is we're building off of this previous message. And we're going to continue to build. And this is an important part of, of following Christ. Now... Um, now that we've come to terms with the fact that we have all, every one of us been called you know, into the Great Commission and that we all have a part to play in evangelism and and, and disciple making, the question then we need that we need to turn to is, how? That's the question we kind of left for for this week. How do we do that? How do we make disciples? How do we evangelize? Because we talked about the image that so many of us have when it comes to evangelism or going out, you know, and and, and sharing the Great Commission or or, or, participating in the Great Commission is Going out in street preaching, or knocking on doors, or you know, and inviting people to, to church, and and you know, inviting people to um, evangelistic uh, services or, or rallies. And many of us think of carrying like a pocket full of snazzy Bible tracks and going, you know, and, and, and you know, to, to every person you see and, and trying to create a conversation with a stranger that you meet in the mall to uh, to share Jesus with him. And don't get me wrong; those things are certainly ways to do that. And, and I think that, that they're important and they're relevant. And I think that people should do them at the right time because I don't think that they're the most effective way to evangelize and to share Jesus. And it's not simply, you know, that that there's anything wrong with it. It's just, it's just simply, they're just not as effective, you know, they're not as effective way to bring someone into the saving knowledge of Christ to help them become a disciple. I mean, again, you know, I'm not against, you you know, knocking on doors. I'm not against that, all right? It's just the problem is the vast majority of people will not begin to follow Jesus based on, on the words and the pamphlet of a stranger. It's just, it doesn't happen very often. And, and really in America and in the, Western, in the Western world, the data bears that out. In fact, there was once a man who went to every single home game, you know, for, uh, uh, for a particular university and he would stand in the parking lot and he would witness to everybody that would come by and he would pass out tracts, you know, in every home game for years and years and years. This guy would do this. And somebody finally asked him, say, hey, you know, you, I see you here all the time. I mean, and, you know, praise God, but how many people have come to, to the Lord since you started doing this, and he said, one. One, all that work, that time and energy, and one person, you know, gets saved. And before you go, well, wait a minute. Well, you know, one person getting saved is worth that effort. I'm not arguing that. That's not what I'm arguing. Okay, I'm not saying he shouldn't continue to do what he's doing. I'm not saying you shouldn't join him and do, and do the same thing. What I'm saying, though is there are vastly more effective ways to share Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you to learn those first before you spend time doing what this guy did. Because if God calls you, you know, if God's called you personally to go out, you know, if he calls you to street witness and he calls you to go out and do those things, I'm not going to get in the way of that. You know, I'm going to encourage you. You know, you go where God leads you. But I believe with all my heart that God wants you to be as effective as you possibly can be with your your time. And that God wants you to reach the maximum amount of people that you can in this lifetime for the message of Christ. And so what I want to talk about over the next few weeks are the most effective ways to do that. I want to give you the tools so you can go out and do your part in the Great Commission as effectively as possible. Now, if you want to go out and street preach, great. All right? Do that. In fact, I, you know, come talk to me. I'll be happy to, to help you get started in that. And if, if going door to door you know, and, and talking to people, inviting them you know, is your thing, then absolutely do that. In fact, you know what? Guess what? In, in the next few weeks, we're going to get our invitations in for our Christmas musical, and we're going to actually, as a, as a church, go out and canvas the entire community. I'm going to give you a stack of those things, and you can go knock on as many doors as you want to. Just give me a couple weeks, and we'll set that up. Okay? I mean, if you want to do that, that's, if that's what you want to do, great. You know, I'm not going to stand in the way of somebody wanting to do these things. But over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to concentrate and talk about the most effective ways in which you can go and share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with those people that are around you. And so for today, what I want to begin with is I want to begin by sharing with you a story from the book of Acts. And this story that we're going to look at is, is we're going to look into the ministry of perhaps the most prolific evangelist um, ever known. He is absolutely the most influential evangelist that has ever walked the face of the earth. And he's probably single-handedly the most person responsible for spreading Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and by extension to the rest of the world. In fact, we're probably here today because of the work that this guy did like 2,000 years ago. And... Um And when you think about what a sold-out Christian looks like, I mean, if you looked that up in the dictionary, this is the guy that should come to mind. This is the guy you should think about. Because not only was he an evangelist, but he was a church planner, a missionary, a theologian, and he was the author of nearly two-thirds of the New Testament that we have today. In fact, this man, you know, took the, the historical narrative of the Gospels, and he explained that for the rest of the world, the implications of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, we don't fully grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ, without his theology. He is perhaps the most influential Christian the world has ever known besides Jesus, but he's definitely the most influential evangelist that has ever lived. And because of that, we're going to spend some time looking at his life today. And the man that I'm talking about, as many of you probably already know, is the Apostle Paul. Now, before we jump into the story here, let me just tell you a little bit more about who Paul is. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, which is in Spain. He was a Roman citizen. He was classically educated, which means he was very smart and very sophisticated. And he was born, you know, um, a Jew to a very zealous family. And he was trained up as a Pharisee, So, which means he, had supremely, he was supremely knowledgeable about Jewish law. And according to Judaism and those who practiced it at the time, he had an impeccable, you know, um, moral record. And he was above reproach. Now, after the the resurrection of Christ, the Christian faith began to experience explosive growth, and that frustrated the Pharisees, which were the ruling class at the time, because they did everything they could to stop this Christian movement. In fact, they're the ones that were responsible for putting Jesus to death, but now this movement is growing, and so Paul, whose name was Saul at the time, joins the ranks of those who would go out to destroy Christianity. In fact, he became one of the chief persecutors of the church early on. He was responsible for the, the arrest, imprisonment, and the execution of a number of Christians and, and people who believed in Christ. And he was zealous for, to do this job. He felt that this was God's calling on his life. He was passionate about stomping out the Christian faith. But on his way to, to Damascus, he was going to destroy the church there. People, I mean, Paul met the risen Jesus Christ and he became converted. And, and and you can find this story in Acts chapter 9, and I encourage you to read it, but the point is that Paul began as a hostile enemy of the faith, and then after meeting Jesus, he becomes the most prolific proponent and evangelist of Christianity in all of history. I mean, here's a guy who hated Christians and sought to destroy the faith. And then once he meets Jesus, he's changed. And then he realizes he has an obligation to share the hope and the healing of Christ with every person he comes in in contact with. And so he sells out all the way for the cause of Christ and he gets busy making disciples. And he does so over the entire Mediterranean area and Asia, Asia Minor as well. And so he sets out and he travels the known world in an effort to spread the gospel of Christ. And because of that, the church just explodes. Now you might think, well, what does it have to do with me? I I mean, I'm not going to go on a mission trip to the Middle East in time soon, okay? All right, I'm not going to go into any, any other country for that matter to share the gospel. I'm not going to synagogues to debate people. I'm not going to go to the public square, you know, and, and and you know, and argue, you know, or or publicly, you know, talk about the gospel of Christ the way he did. Okay? I'm not going to travel around like an itinerant evangelist preaching to big crowds like Paul did. I'm not going go to, to go to plant churches either. It's not my desire to be an evangelist, evangelical superstar like Paul was. Okay? So what, is, what does this have to do with me? Well, it actually has a lot to do with you. Because today, we're not going to look at Paul's public preaching. We're not going to focus on Paul's public debates or his cross-cultural work between Jews and Greeks. We're not going to talk about any of that. In fact, we're not going to focus on Paul's public activities at all. Instead, we're going to actually focus on his more private life and his private activities. We're, going to, we're, going to focus on, we're not going to focus on Paul's glowing public triumphs. We're going to focus on Paul's struggles and his private testimony as he goes through those struggles. And, uh, and we're going to focus on a story in Paul's life that actually I know for a fact that we can all identify with in some way. In fact, this story that I want to, uh, you know, I want to focus on today in Acts is where Paul is having a very, very, very bad day, okay? I mean, he's having a terrible day, okay? And let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had a bad day, right? It's a stupid question, right? Yeah, because everybody's had a bad day. Everybody has had a bad day. In fact, some of you might have even had a bad day recently. Some of you might, might have woke up this morning and are having a bad day this morning. And I'll pray for you. I mean, I hope that's not true, but you might be you, all right? But it doesn't matter if you're old or you're young or you're married or single or pretty or ugly. It doesn't matter, okay? Every one of us have had a bad day. And, 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 and I think that we've all had a bad day to end all bad days, right? We've had really one of those really bad days. One of those bad days we thought when nothing would ever, ever get back, to, you know, get back to normal again. That things would never get better again. So, so here is a common ground for us that we have with the Apostle Paul. We have all had bad days. And in this story, Paul is having a very, very bad day. In fact, we picked that story up in Acts 16, beginning in verse 16, and it reads this way. It says, as we, and and, and I just want to stop there real quick. Uh, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, okay, as well as the book of Luke, all right? And what he's saying here, when he says the word we, he is indicating that in this point in the story, Luke is now with uh, Paul and Silas, okay? He is an eyewitness to what is happening here. So Luke isn't just some guy who wrote the book of Luke and the Luke, book of Acts years and years and years after Christianity had been started. Luke is a contemporary of Jesus Christ and the disciples themselves and was an eyewitness of many of the things that happened in Paul's life and in his ministry. So he says, we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling, okay? So what he's saying is we run into this young girl who essentially was a medium, who had contact with demons in the spirit world, right? Okay? And this contact gave her supernatural insight and knowledge, and the people who owned her exploited this, okay, and exploited this girl's relationship with the spirit world and her possession you know, by a demon in an effort to make money. She was a medium that people would go to because she was like this fortune teller endowed with some supernatural powers by a demon. And these people would pay her, you know, her pay her owners a great deal of money for her to tell their fortune or to give a reading. It's kind of like today, okay? People will pay palm readers or, or psychics or mediums, you know, to do readings. I mean, you remember that that one... Met the Cleo lady on TV a long time ago? Yeah. All right? I mean, this is what, this is the same kind of thing. All right? That people would pay her lots of money. All right? Because people, and still today, people are fascinated with this stuff. People pay lots of money to find out the future from these fortune tellers. Well, on a side note, just real quick, let me just be clear about this. Okay? This kind of activity is prohibited by Scripture for a reason. And the, and the reason is the roots of this activity is demonic. Okay? This kind of spiritual activity is demonic, okay? And that's what we have here. We have a young girl who's possessed by a demon, and she's able to tell the future to a certain degree because of of that possession. And this girl runs into Paul and his companions. And then in verse 17, it says, and she followed Paul and and us crying, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim you... Are the way, uh, proclaim to you the way of salvation? And she kept doing this for many days. This girl's following them around for several days, making a spectacle. And then it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, "I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her." And it came out of her that very hour. Now, so here's the picture. You know, Paul and his companions are being followed around for several days by this girl who's, who makes a living, you know, uh, telling fortunes because she's possessed by a demon. And she's shouting everywhere they go, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Okay, and you see what's happening. This, this, this is essentially a demon in this girl. And basically, it's, it's mocking them in the work that they're doing and making, you know, a, a spectacle and actually becoming a, a hindrance to them. And Paul gets fed up with it. And what, he, what does he do? He does what, what, what you're supposed to do. In the name of Jesus, I command you to get out. And it left. And then in the book, we look in verse 19, it says, but when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, you know, that they're basically losing money now, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, just think about this little point. Paul frees this girl from the clutches of a, of a demon, and all her owners can think about is the money they're losing. I mean, obviously, he's a man of God. Obviously, he has substantial power to cast out the demon. And obviously, she's there, there was some supernatural force possessing her. And obviously, her life's going to be better off without being possessed by this spirit or demon. But they don't care. All they care about is the money. It must have been a lot of money because they grabbed Paul and Silas. They drug him before the the, the rulers of the city. And then it says, and then they were brought... And then they had brought them to the magistrates. Uh, They said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, Now, notice here, they don't even mention the fact that Paul cast the demon out of this girl. All right? They don't even tell that part of the story. They just make this about religion now. Okay? I mean, people have been politicizing religion for thousands of years. So it's nothing new. All right? And then verse 22, it says, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And so Paul and Silas take you know, a beating at the hands of these law enforcement officials. And in verse 23 it says, And when they have, had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to, uh, to keep them safe. And having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, I have had some bad days in my life. And I know that you have too, but I have never had... Anything like this happened. Okay. I mean, Paul and Silas were hauled into jail for some, you know, for, for, for uh, setting someone free from a demon, and they were attacked by an angry mob. They had their clothes stripped off of them, and then they were beaten publicly with a rod. And you got to understand, this is not your mama spanking, okay? All right. This was a grown man, a grown, strong man whose profession it was, was to beat people, okay, and he took a a wooden rod and he would hit them across the naked back over and over and over and over again, okay, and then on top of that, Paul and Silas, they weren't escorted into the infirmary so they can receive medical attention because they obviously were going to need that from the beating they took, they were just simply thrown into prison, and not only were they thrown into prison, they were thrown into the inner part of the prison where it's dark. And then they had their feet, you know, their feet uh, put into stocks, so they couldn't really get up and move around. And so what started out to be a pretty good day suddenly turned, you know, out to be one of the worst days they could possibly have. These guys, you know, find themselves locked up in a dark, nasty jail cell, beaten and probably still bleeding. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever had a day like this, and I mean, I've had some really bad days, okay, Nothing like this, okay? I mean, I know for me, you know, if it were me in this situation, if I was Paul and Silas' situation, based on how I usually react to things, I probably would have had a bad attitude about this whole thing, okay? Just, I'm just being honest here, okay? All right, I mean, I'd probably be a little bit discouraged, all right? I'd probably be maybe a little upset, all right? I'd probably cry out to God, why me? You know, I'd probably have a few choice of words to say, you know, about the people who put me in jail, Right? I probably complained about my situation and the people to the people around me, and rightfully so. I mean, I would have, you know, I would have been wrongfully beaten and wrongfully imprisoned, so I would have had a right to be angry and upset and complain about this. But I want you to notice in this story how Paul and Silas react to the situation. It says in verse 25: About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What? They were praying and singing to God. You're kidding me, right? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, they're in jail. And it's not like here in America, you know, I mean, they're throwing a dark, nasty room with no running water or plumbing, no heater, no air conditioner, no TV, no foam mattress, no rights at all. I mean, if they're lucky, somebody might come and feed them, okay? And so here they are in jail, still bleeding from the beating they've taken, no medical attention, not even any ibuprofen, right? No ice packs for the swelling. And what do these guys do? They're singing and they're praying. They're worshiping God. They're worshiping God from their jail cell. They're having the worst kind of bad day that you can have. And this is the way they react. They, re- they worship God. Now this is important because notice what it says in, in verse 25. It says, about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners We're listening to them. You see, Paul and Silas, in their worst circumstances, are privately worshiping God. They're not publicly preaching, all right? They're privately worshiping God, and the prisoners are listening to them. And this is an important part of the story, and we're going to see that in just a minute. And then in verse 26 it says, And then suddenly a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And then immediately the doors were opened, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Now, think about this. Is there any doubt what the source of the earthquake is? I mean, the building didn't fall in, okay? Right? Instead, the doors were opened and everybody's restraints fall off of them. This is a supernatural event. God caused this earthquake and essentially freed the captives. But then the story continues, it says, And when the jailer woke up, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And the, and the reason for that, you got to understand in this Roman culture, is if you're a jailer, you were expected to take care of your prisoners. And if somebody escaped, you were executed. Talk about motivation to do your job, right? Okay? I mean, if somebody escaped, you paid for it with your life. All right? I mean, that was motivation to put people's feet in stock so they couldn't get up and run around. Okay? Because if a prisoner left, your life was over. Your boss's job at that point, you know, wasn't to give you a pink slip, was to call, you know... Right? His job was to kill you. Right? I mean, talk about a rough work environment. I mean, I mean no grievances there, right? So, so the jailer knew what was going on. All right? I mean, I mean, and he knew what was going to happen to him. As soon as he saw those doors were open, he knew what was going to happen. And he wasn't going to wait around for somebody to come and kill him. Instead, what he did, he was going to go ahead and kill his, his, himself. But then in verse 28, Paul cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul's like saying, don't kill yourself, no one's escaped, we're still here, none of us have left. And then the jailer, just a really kind of a weird reaction, called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, let's just stop, and let's just just process this a little bit, okay? Paul and Silas have been beaten, they're in jail, and instead of complaining, they're worshiping God. The prisoner's here, and obviously the jailer did too. And then this earthquake happens, sets everybody free, but, but nobody, nobody leaves. Everybody stays put. And the jailer sees all the doors open, thinks the worst of the situation, is about to kill himself. Paul stops him and assures him everything's going to be okay. And this man rushes into, into the cell, falls at the feet of these two men who were his prisoners, and he brings them out, and, and, and he realizes his need for salvation and ask them the most important question a person could possibly ask. What can I do to be saved? What a crazy turn of events. Paul and Silas are at his mercy. They're the mercy of this jailer. Their life is in his hands. And suddenly the jailer sees the reality of the situation. And realizes that his life and his eternity are in their hands. And he humbles himself. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And then they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. I mean, finally, all right, finally, they're getting some medical care, right? And then he, then he was baptized at once, and he and all his family. See, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 34, it says, And he brought them up to, into his house, set food in front of them. So now they're going to get to eat too. And uh, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, this right here, this is a really, really important story because this isn't about Paul and Silas preaching to someone, okay? This isn't about them passing out Bible tracts or knocking on doors or street witnessing. This isn't, you know, Paul and Silas striking up a conversation with someone so they can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. This story isn't about any of the things that we normally think about when we think about the Great Commission or evangelism. This story is about something else, something else entirely. This story is about the testimony of their lives. This is the story about the testimony of Paul and Silas and the lives they lived in private. You see, long after people forget your words, they remember your actions. And, and long before your words will resonate with someone... They're already judging you by your actions. Who you are in private resonates into the public at some point. And so, the first thing that we need to know about this story is that our lives have a testimony, and that testimony tells the truth about what, who we really are and what we really believe. You see, in the end, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter how you pretend to act in certain situations. It doesn't matter how religious we try to be. What really, really matters is the testimony of our lives, the testimony of our lifestyle. Because who we are eventually comes out, especially when the pressure increases in our lives. And this is important for us to understand as we think about the Great Commission and our role in it. Because the greatest tool that you have at your disposal when it comes to being part of the Great Commission is the testimony of your life. Life. It can be your greatest tool. It can also be your greatest weakness. Because the truth is, if you're going to influence, okay, you're only going to influence so many people by what you say. You're going to only influence just a few people by the words that you say. I don't care if you're a slick-talking evangelist or a passionate street preacher you know, or a bold street witness. You're only going to influence so many people with your words. Because people naturally understand that words are meaningless unless they're backed up by action or character and integrity. Words essentially are meaningless without those things. In fact, Mark Hall, the lead singer of Casting Crowns, wrote a song called Life Song. And this, is, this song has the idea that, that your life is a song that should be sung out to the Lord. And he wrote these words. He says, empty hands held high, such small sacrifice. If not joined with my life, I sing in vain tonight. See, it, the point is, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how well you observe rituals it doesn't matter how well you participate in religious activities if my life isn't in concert with what I claim to believe I'm wasting my time your life is a testimony for good or bad your life testifies about who you are and what you really believe about God and that testimony has more influence when it comes to to doing your part to make disciples than anything you could ever say and that's exactly what happens here in the story. In fact, if you, you look a little bit closer, Paul is not in a synagogue where people are listening to him. All right? He's not in a public square debating philosophy. Paul's not in a small gathering you know, ministering to believers. Paul and Silas are in a hostile environment. They're prisoners who have no influence in jail. And obviously, they have no influence with the city authorities. Nobody around them at this moment knows who they are. There are absolutely nobodies in jail. And if there was a time that you're actually going to let your hair down and actually be yourself, that would be a good time to do it. I mean, there's nobody there around to impress. There was nobody, you know, to pretend for anymore. But as we talked about, these two men didn't complain, which we would expect them to do. They didn't plead their case, that they were wrongfully imprisoned. In fact, we find out a little bit later on in the story, Paul is a Roman citizen, and it's actually against the law for Paul and his companion to be beaten and put in jail without a trial because he was a Roman citizen. And he could have protested and and, and claimed his rights from the beginning, but he doesn't do that. But instead, he endured the beating, and he was thrown in jail. And, And while no one important or influential um, was around for the cause of Christ was looking. While no one was around, while they were in this hostile environment, they didn't gripe, they didn't cry, and so they worshipped God. They worshipped God. You see, Paul and Silas didn't have to tell anyone that they were sold out for Jesus. They didn't have to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm all about Jesus. Okay. It was obvious by their lifestyle. It was obvious by their behavior. They didn't have to say, oh yeah, you know, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? All right. Their actions in the darkness of their jail cell screamed it out loud for them. And guess what? Everyone around them noticed. They noticed that these two men were absolutely sold out for the cause of Christ. Which leads me to the second thing we need to take from this story. If you're going to do your part for the Great Commission, you just need to go ahead and sell out. You need to be sold out for Jesus. You need to be sold out for the cause of Christ. We need to sell all the way out. We need to stop holding certain things in our lives that we don't want to give up. We need to be completely sold out for Jesus in a way that can be seen even in the darkest circumstances, even in our worst of days. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Being sold out for Christ is the whole point of the Beatitudes that we found in Luke. You see, Jesus isn't saying being poor or hungry or weeping or or, or being hated is a blessing. He's saying that if you will endure those things, and if you were sold out for me, you will be blessed because great will be your reward in heaven. If you were sold out for me and go through these kinds of trials, great will your reward be. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas are doing here. They're in jail. They're hungry. They're hated. They're beaten. Instead of complaining, (laughs) they're, they're worshiping God. They're worshiping God in their struggle, and they do that because they are sold out. And it's obvious to those around them that they're sold out. Everybody knows it. You see, the reason why you need to be completely sold out for Christ is because your life and the way that you live it when you're sold out for Christ is a huge influence on everyone. Everyone around you. It influences your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your associates, even your enemies, and even people that you come in contact in your daily life. Being sold out for Jesus will have a huge influence on everybody around you. And they will notice it. And because people notice that, that influence that comes from that will give you the ability to then effectively share Christ. Because it's not about your words, it's also about your actions. You're not just talking the talk, you're actually walking the walk. Being sold out gave Paul and Silas an audience and people were paying attention to them. Why? Because the prisoners and the jailers had already seen lots of people cry. They already seen lots of people complain and protest and plead and curse while they're in jail. That was normal. They'd seen it hundreds of times before. That's what they expected out of people. But they'd never seen anybody worship God, while they're in pain or in jail, Paul and Silas stood in sharp contrast to the rest of the world what it does. Being sold out was a beacon of light shining in that dark dungeon. It was uncanny because of, and because of that, everyone was paying attention to them. Everybody wanted to hear what they had to say. Everybody's watching them. Paul and Silas, because of the way they were sold out, had an audience. But that's not all. But notice when the earthquake hits, Paul and Silas, they're supernaturally freed from their stocks and their legs, and the prison doors are flung wide open, and they're free to go. God has opened the door. They could have simply walked out, packed up their stuff, and moved on to the next city. Nothing was stopping them, but they didn't do that. Instead, they say, and, and said they stayed. Now, the question we have to really ask, and, and that's what you have, you have to do when you approach the Bible, you have to ask questions all the time. Why? 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 Why would they do that? Why? Well, the reason why they would do that is found in Paul's urgent cry to the jailer. You see, the jailer was about to commit suicide because he thought everybody escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You see, the reason why Paul and Silas didn't leave is because being a Roman citizen from that culture, he knew what would happen if he left. He knew that it would cost the jailer his life. And so they stayed. Paul stayed because he cared. Now think about this. What did the jailer do for him? Nothing except lock him up. Nothing except put his stocks on his legs. And Paul didn't know him. He was a a complete stranger. But Paul didn't leave the jail cell because he cared. Not only did he care, he cared more about someone else's life than his own. This is the part we have to understand. This is vitally important to understand in this text here. Paul cared more about the jailer's life than his own. He was more concerned about what would happen to the jailer than what he than what would happen in his own plight. Because the reality is, at this moment, the future was not certain. Okay, if you're in the first century and you're in a Roman in a Roman city, all right, in that culture, you get thrown in jail, you might stay there forever. In that culture, You might be in prison, and and the magistrate might just get tired of hearing your voice and just decide to have you executed. This isn't America. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no Miranda rights. You're beholden to the power, whoever is over you. And so who would have blamed him for leaving? I mean, Paul, you know, is, is, is wrongfully imprisoned, beaten to a pulp. No one cares about him except Silas. The future is completely uncertain. And then God supernaturally sets them free, and all he has to do is walk out, but he doesn't. And again... He and Silas stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. And he puts the interest and the well-being of the jailer above his own. And that's the third thing you need to take away from this story. If you're going to do your part as a Christ follower to spread the gospel of Jesus, if you're going to have any credibility with anyone else, you must put their interest Above your own. You must put the interests of other people above your own. You must count people more valuable than yourself. You and your interest must become secondary to other people and their interest. In fact, Paul tells us that in a letter to the church in this very city that he's imprisoned in. Where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then he goes on and says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's, 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 it's uncanny, because that's from the letter of Philippians, and he's in a Philippian jail. Okay, And in this story, Paul is practicing what he preaches. He is practicing what he's preaching. He's living out his instructions. Paul understands that following Christ and doing his part for the Great Commission requires that we put other people and their interests above our own. We regard other people above ourselves. We need to care about other people more than we care about ourselves. Now, I know that might seem like a radical idea, and I know that certainly seems like an unnatural idea, and it's certainly countercultural, but that's the point. In fact, that's the heart of the gospel. (laughs) God condescended to become a man. He lived a perfect life and in his innocence died on the cross so we could be saved. Think about this. God put your soul and your eternity above his own life and above his own pain. And, and, and the thing is, is and if we think about this and process this, this, the cost of this is incalculable. Because if you think about Christ as he hung on the cross and he's pushing off of the spike in his feet. As he's trying to take a deep, take a breath, he musters up enough strength to, to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turns his back on the Son. And for the first time in eternity, past and future, the Father and the Son break fellowship. How does that work? I have no idea. There's not a theologian in the world that understands that. But all we know is that God paid a great price. Because God sold out for you. He valued you above his own sacrifice. God lifted your eternal life and your above the physical life of his own son. And because of that, if you're a Christ follower, that sacrifice changed you. It changed something inside of you. The whole world stood in condemnation of you and who you are. But Christ sacrificed himself for you. So there would be no condemnation and that changes everything. You see, when we lift others up above ourselves, it changes things. Because everyone's expecting for people to look at their own interest. Everybody's expecting to do what's in their own interest. You know, everybody says the phrase, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Okay? But when we value others above ourselves, when we care more about other people than we do ourselves, suddenly people become willing to hear what we have to say. When we will value people above ourselves, people become willing to listen. In fact, there's an old saying, and I try to live by it, it says, nobody cares about how much you know until they know about how much you care. It's really as simple as that. Loving and caring about other people and putting their interest above your own changes things. It gives you a whole new level of credibility. When you say, when what you say to people is preceded by caring and loving and compassion, your words suddenly have exponentially more weight. And this is the part that so many people miss when they intend to go and evangelize the lost by going out in the in the streets to, to witness or pass out tracts or stand on, on the corner with a bullhorn. Lots of people, you know, go out to tell others about Jesus and what they know. And again, I'm not saying these things are a bad thing. It's just that it's that it's just not going to be very effective because because they're not investing anything in them. They have not demonstrated they care about them. They have not elevated these people and their audience above themselves. Now you might say, well, hang on a second. my going out, you know, to share the gospel is a demonstration that I care, right? I take courage to do this and and I get out of my comfort zone and I do it because I care. Well, that may be absolutely the truth, but let's be real. If you go out and you pass out a thousand Bible tracts on the street corner, you're not going to have a thousand people thinking, oh, what a wonderful, thoughtful Christian person for coming out to the mall today to give me this piece of paper with some Bible verses on it. That's not what they're going to be thinking, okay? All right? They're not going to be thinking, oh, you know what? Because of this piece of paper, I'm going to follow Jesus now. That's just not what they're going to be thinking. The vast majority of people are not going to feel that you care about them. Okay, I'm just going to be real. They're certainly going to feel like you're trying to convert them. They'll feel that. They're going to feel like you want them to go to church with you. They will certainly feel that. But they're not going to feel like you care about them and their lives. An illustration of this is I get get this letter, and I don't know why, but there's a missionary couple to France, and uh, they're not one of the missionaries that we support, but somehow I end up on their mailing list, and I get their letter every month, and one of their letters, they were kind of like discouraged, and they lamented the fact that the people in France were secular. You know, and, uh, and anti-faith. And they complained about how they were struggling to spread the gospel over there, and they talked about how they worked so hard passing out tens and tens of thousands of tracts, you know, week and, you know, day in and day out, but nobody was responding. And my thought was, have you tried to just go feed some people that were hungry and start there? You know, why don't you go visit some people that are in hospitals and offer to pray with them and love on them? Right? Well why don't you work to help the poor and find a way to make life better for people in the community? Why don't you find some way to serve others as a way that that, you know that, that demonstrates the love of Christ, you know, to them? You see, people don't care about how much you know. They don't care about your faith, they don't care about your Jesus until they know how much you care. Caring about other people and putting them first gives you the right to speak into their lives. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Paul understands the score. He knows this guy is gonna kill himself instead of having his boss come and kill him. Paul says, don't do it. We're not going anywhere. Paul puts his jailer's life and his well-being above his own. And look what happens. And the jailer calls for a light, and he, rushes, he rushed in. Trembling with fear, fell down at Paul and Sil- before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, the jailers had no question about Paul and Silas's genuine concern for him. He had no question that these two men were sold out for the God that they worshipped. The only question he had was, what must I do to be saved? Because by the way that these two guys live, I know that they know the answer. You see, your life and the way that you live is infinitely more compelling. It's infinitely a more compelling testimony than your words can ever be. And we all Know this in some level anyway, don't we? I mean, we've all heard the expression, your actions speak louder than your words. I mean, even people who don't believe in God, you know, know, use this expression. Why? Because it's true. It's true for every part of your life. It's especially true about faith. Your actions speak louder than your words ever could. Your life and your actions are the the greatest and most powerful testimony you have. And if you are sold out for Christ, if you you put the lives and interests of others above your own, you won't have to pass out Bible tracts to find someone to share the gospel with because there are people around you that will be ready to hear it from you. Now, notice when the jailer asked the question, Okay, Paul's actually ready to answer. He says, believe in the, the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And he spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Paul and Silas were completely ready. They were completely prepared to take advantage of this opportunity to share the gospel. They explained to the jailer and his family exactly what they needed to be, do to be saved. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to them in their house. And then notice what it says. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. See, Paul and Silas did not stop with evangelism. They went right into disciple-making. They shared the gospel. They baptized the new believers. And they taught them the word of the Lord. And I bet you, you know, since Paul is so familiar with the church in Philippi, that, that, that he helped the, the, the jailer get his family plugged into the local church there in that city. You see, Paul and Silas not only were sold out and not only did they care about others, they were continually ready to make disciples. And that's the fourth and the last thing that we need to take away from this story. You need to be continually ready to make disciples. You need to be continually ready to share the gospel. You need to be ready to help someone take the next step and get plugged into a church. You need to be ready to help them, to talk to them about baptism and help them take that step too. You need to be ready to help others become disciples of Christ. Now I realize okay, that you might not know, all right, how to be ready, well, guess what? That's why we're here. That's what we're here for. We're right here, right now, growing together as disciples ourselves. And the good news is, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk exactly about this, how we can be ready, because we want you to have all the tools that you can have and all the tools that you need to share the gospel and make disciples of the nations. We want you to help. We want to help you to be sold out for Christ. We want to help you put others first in your life. We want to help you have all the tools and the resources you could possibly need to make disciples. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in the the coming weeks. But for today, today the question is: Is how do we take what we learned and apply it to our lives? I mean, what do we do with this? Well, we begin with, I think we need another commitment. I mean, last week, you know, your homework was to, is for you to commit to do your part. That you committed to doing your part to get involved in the work that God is calling you to do. Well, this week, you need to commit again. But this time, you need to commit to, number one, selling out for Christ. Sell all the way out for Him. There shouldn't be any part of your life that, that doesn't belong to Christ. And then number two, you need to commit to putting the interest of others before your own. And then number three... You need to commit to learning to be ready to make disciples. You need to commit to all three of these. Now understand, this is a lot here, and I get it, okay? Okay, but here's the thing. Every one of you were called to make disciples. You were called to be a part of the Great Commission. And these three things are absolutely, they will give you the best shot at fulfilling your part in this. This is the very best way to reach the lost. The only question that you have left to answer is, is the Christ who died to save you and the Christ who sold out for you so you could be free, is he important enough and valuable enough for you to commit to doing these three things? That's the question you have to ask. Is Jesus worth the effort? Is he worth selling out for? Is he worth putting you know, others above yourself for? Is he worth the work it's going to take for you to be ready to make disciples? That's the question that you have to ask yourself this week. That's the homework that you have. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we just, we just thank you for your word and how sharp it is. Your word says it's sharper than two, any two-edged sword. That it just separates soul from spirit and bone from marrow. And Lord, I'm just I'm going to be honest. I'm going to struggle with this. I continue to struggle with this. You know, I want to sell it for you, and I work on that every day. Putting others above my own other interests above my own. That's where I struggle. I got a lot of things I'm really interested in. I got a lot of things that, that I really care about that involve me. And I struggle in that area right there to make others a priority over that. I want to grow in that, Lord. I desperately want to grow in that, Lord. I want to be passionate for your word and your name. And I want for people to see in my life what they saw in Paul and Silas, a person who's willing to sell all the way out for Jesus and a person who is, who is completely willing to put the, the interests in the life of other people above his own. And I pray that all of us would take that seriously. And I pray that all of us would get prepared, Lord, to share the gospel. We would know the word well enough to do that. And we would know how to lead people in, 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 in a prayer to be saved. And we would know how to get people plugged in and help them become disciples and help them to get baptized, Lord. I just pray, Father, that this would be a time right now as we prepare lord that you'd use this series to stir our hearts to to this lord that we would we would get serious about the great commission and lord that that this people that this congregation would rise up lord out of the apathy of what's happening in our country would rise up and go out into the community and the the, the world at large and make other disciples lord and that our town and this church and uh would, would be beacons of hope lord and that people would, would see that like they saw the work of Paul and Silas and go what's going on there how do we find out about that How do we know this, God? I want your name to be glorified above everything else. I just pray, Father God, you'd do that. And I pray, Father, for all people that are here, Lord. I pray that you'd meet them where they need you. I pray, Lord God, for those who weren't here, that you'd bring them back safely here. I pray, Father, that in all things, word and deed, be glorified. Please, Lord, we love you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.